Well, we continue this morning in our series on the book of Colossians, continuing through chapter 1 this morning. And there's a debate that goes on across many different areas and disciplines of life. And the debate is on this question, who is the GOAT? Who is the GOAT? Now, some of you are very confused and you've heard this phrase before. It actually means, who is the greatest of all time? GOAT being G-O-A-T. For some of you, you just learned something new in the first 30 seconds of this sermon, and you are very thankful. Who is the GOAT, or who is the greatest of all time? You could think about this in a variety of different ways in a number of different areas. For instance, if you're into history, maybe you'd like to think, who is the greatest president of all time? Is it George Washington? Our first president who, when the people wanted to make him king, gave up that privilege in order so that peaceful transition of government would take place. Or is it perhaps Abraham Lincoln who led our country through some of its darkest hours and provided such needed leadership during such a pivotal moment in our country's history? Who's the greatest president of all time? We could debate that. Another debate which I think is wide open for discussion is who is the greatest singer of all time? The greatest singer of all time. Is it the queen of soul, Aretha Franklin herself? Just a fantastic voice that she has. Or is it the one they called the genius? Is it Ray Charles? And such a variety of genres that he could sing and perform to. And no discussion would be complete without the man they called the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Who is the greatest singer of all time? We could have a really lively debate over that. The discussion that, that this debate most comes up with, though, is actually in the sports world. In the sports world, and specifically to basketball. So the question is, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Is it one Michael Jordan, who played here in the city of Chicago, or, or is it the guy who by no coincidence wears the same number as Michael Jordan did, number 23, LeBron James. Now, I can tell from your round of applause that there are some very unbiased people who lived in Chicago in the 80s and 90s. That just makes you an observer of both, not biased. And just before you write me off that you're not gonna listen to anything, he's the greatest, all right? We can, it's, it, he is. Even though I'm from California, Michael Jordan's still the greatest of all time. That, that's that's no, no debate there for me. But we can debate and, and discuss who is the greatest of these different areas. And this morning, I want us to think of who is the greatest of all time in all the world. And to me, when I look at the passage we're going to look at this morning, this question is not up for debate, that Jesus is the greatest of all time. There's no debate about it. that Jesus himself is the greatest person to have ever walked on this planet. If you would this morning open your Bibles to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians, and we are still in chapter 1 this morning looking at verses 15 to 20. Colossians 1 verses 15 to 20. These six verses are six of the most theologically rich verses in all of the Bible. It would not be hard to do a six-part sermon series on just these six verses. There is so much rich truth found in these. This passage that we're going to look at this morning was likely adapted and taken from a hymn 
that was sung by early believers um, right after Jesus had ascended into heaven. And it speaks to us this morning as we work through it together. We're going to discover four reasons highlighted in this passage, four reasons that Jesus is the greatest of all time. The passage starts in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. It says this, He, referring back to the Son in two verses earlier, He being Jesus the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. The first reason that Jesus is the greatest of all time is that He is the God of all. He is the God of all. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, when Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, sometimes when we think of how we would use the word image, it's different than their, um, their time and how they would communicate and use that word. So for instance, when we think of image today, we often think of a picture, right? A digital image that we may have on our cell phone or on our computer, and we would see it and you could see that, oh yeah, it's like this, but we would never think that that image of someone is the actual person. And the the difficulty with this is sometimes that we would maybe think, oh, if Jesus is just the image of God, that just means Jesus is just like God. And he just shows us things that who God is like. But Jesus being the image of God doesn't mean he just shows us what God is like. Jesus is the perfect representation of God in every single way. When it speaks that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it does not say that Jesus is like God. It says Jesus is God. It's a very important distinction that we must understand if we're to understand who Jesus is. Jesus does not just tell us what God is like. Jesus is God himself. The author of Hebrews says of Jesus that he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. That Jesus is fully God. He not only is the image of the invisible God, it says that he is the firstborn of all creation. Now in scripture, firstborn can take on two different meanings. Sometimes the firstborn simply means the first in a number of sequences, the chronologically first. And so the eldest child would be called the firstborn, the secondborn, until they finally got down to the best one, which is the youngest child. I wonder where I was born. The firstborn can be first in order, but oftentimes in Scripture, the firstborn doesn't excuse me, have a significance of order, but of priority and importance. That the firstborn doesn't mean it's the first as in one, two, three, but it's the first as in it's the most important. It is the supreme one, which is why Israel is called God's firstborn because he was of utmost importance to God. In the the book of Psalms, chapter 89, when looking forward to the Messiah to come, it said that he would be the firstborn of Israel, that he would be the firstborn. See, we could think that when it says the firstborn of all creation, that this means that Jesus was the one who was created first. But that's not what Paul is saying. When we speak of Jesus as the firstborn of all creation, we're not saying he is the first created being. We're saying he is over and supreme above all of creation. 
And as Paul starts out this reminder and focus on who Jesus is, he highlights for us two theological truths that we must understand about Jesus. The first is that Jesus is fully God. Jesus is fully God. And the second is Jesus has eternally existed as God. Jesus has eternally existed as God. An ancient heresy that came into the church a couple hundred years after Jesus had departed was the heresy that we now call Arianism, called Arianism. And it looked at passages like this and it argued that that Jesus was the Son of God, but that Jesus was simply the first of creation And because Jesus was the first created being, he was then subordinate to God and just told us what God was like. But as biblical scholars got together and read through the scriptures, they've confirmed what we believe scripture teaches. Not that Jesus is just like God, but Jesus is God himself. He is God himself. Jesus is one person fully having two natures fully God and fully man. Jesus is fully God and fully man. We miss everything about Jesus if we miss this. We miss everything if we think about some of the things he's done, about what he's said, about some of the works that he's done, but we miss the fact that he is God. We miss everything. Jesus is God. Jesus always has been God, and Jesus always will be God. The first reason that Jesus is the greatest of all is that Jesus is the God of all. The second reason we find in verse 16, verse 16 says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. The second reason that Jesus is the greatest of all time is that Jesus is the creator of all. He is the creator of all things, all that is in our world and universe. Paul makes specific focus on this. All things were created, and he goes into this list here, summarizing what he means under all things. It's in heaven and on earth. It's things visible and invisible. It's thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. And by mentioning specifically these things, Paul is making specific reference that Jesus is the creator over not only the physical world in which we see with our eyes, but the spiritual world and every spiritual realm actually owes its origin to Jesus. Angels and demons find their origin in creation all the way back to him. Jesus has created all things. And and he likely specifically highlights this. When talking about rulers and authorities, which is a phrase used throughout scripture to talk about the demonic realm, the spiritual realm, in that the teaching had likely come in to face the Colossians, that what they needed to add to their belief about Jesus was a worship of angels and a worship of other spiritual beings. 
And Paul refutes this teaching by saying, why would you worship something that is created by someone else? Jesus doesn't need to be added to with the worship of angels or other things when Jesus, in fact, is the creator over those things. And because Jesus is the creator of those things, he is the only one worthy of their worship. He is the creator of all things. It says that by him and through him, all things were created. That Jesus is the agent in which our world has come to be. See, so often when we talk about creation in our world today, even inside the church, we talk a lot about the when of creation, right? And we dig into scripture and we think about when the world was created and how long it took place. And those are good questions that we should really wrestle with and have good answers to. But don't in all of our striving to figure out the when of creation, creation miss the most important part, and that's the who of creation. The most important part isn't when the world came into existence. The most important part is who brought this world into existence. See, our Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created. And that's the most important part about creation, in that it was God who has created the world. Jesus is the one through whom and by whom creation has been brought into being. And then he adds this at the end. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus is not only the one by whom creation comes into existence, but is the purpose and goal for which all things have been made. Jesus is the purpose and goal of all of creation, finds itself only in its relationship with him. So as human beings, given that we are part of God's creation, our purpose for our lives, the goal for which we were made cannot be found in anything else other than in Jesus. Because we were not only made by him and through him, but we were made for him as well. See, there's a, a chance that in your home there are things that you've purchased that are not being used for its original purpose. There, there are items that you possess that are not used for its original purpose. And perchance one of these things that you have in your house that are in thousands of houses around the U.S. is a treadmill. And you know the purpose of a treadmill. It's not so a dog could sleep on it. Oh, that's cute. It's also not so a cat can sleep on it. I think that cat needs to walk on the treadmill, actually. That is a big cat. cat needs, it's not for a cat bed. That's not the purpose for which a treadmill was made. It's also not made for a human bed. It's not designed for sleepovers. By the way, this one reminds me of the, the old treadmill joke, which I'm sure you've heard. Uh, I'm, I'm almost up to an hour a day on the treadmill. The next step is to turn it on. Some of you will get that in a couple minutes. That's all right. The next, the next uh, thing, it could be used for storage, right? You got to store all those reusable bags that are around your house. Why not use the treadmill? But the most common probably purpose for which a treadmill has used that it's not originally designed for is it just becomes another closet. Just let's pile more stuff on. Let's put our laundry. Let's stick it on there. And see, we see and we know that 
the treadmill wasn't designed. It wasn't purposed for that. And we laugh because we see how foolish it is if someone were to say, look at my new clothes hanger, look at my new closet right here. Yet that's how foolish we look when we think we can find our purpose in life apart from Jesus. When we feel a longing inside of us and we say, that promotion, that will do it. When we say, if this relationship would work out, then I would know. That would really give me the goal of my life. See, it's not just bad things that we substitute for Jesus and finding the purpose. It's good things like work and family and pleasure and fun. But if you're seeking after the purpose of your life and you're not seeking after Jesus, you won't find it. Because you were not just created by him and through him, you were created ultimately for him. And the purpose of your life can only be found in Jesus. The third reason that Jesus is the greatest of all is found here in verses 17 and 18. It says this, again, speaking of Jesus, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. The third reason that Jesus is the greatest of all time is Jesus is the sustainer of all. Jesus is the sustainer of all life. He is the sustainer of our universe. See, it says here that Jesus is before all things. Again, arguing for the pre-existence of Jesus. He is not a created being. He stands before and behind and above creation. But in him, all things are held together. You didn't think about it when you woke up this morning. But the only reason you woke up and the earth was still spinning and you had life is because Jesus sustained you through the night. The only reason you will take your next breath is if Jesus sustains you for that very moment. See, as I was thinking about this thought this week, I realized the deep truth that children sing in one of the first songs that they learned, and I know I learned it as a young child growing up at the church. It's a simple song. It talks about a, he's got the whole world in his hands. Right, and as a kid, you're like, Jesus has got pretty big hands. Wow, the earth's a big place. But that simple song has this profound truth that where Jesus, when Jesus, if he did not have the whole world in his hands and not sustaining us, the whole world would fall apart. That Jesus sustains all things and Jesus sustains your life, breath by breath. He doesn't just sustain all things. He doesn't just sustain you. It says in verse 18 that he is the head of the body, the church. See, the head was the governing member of the body. The head is what controlled the body and gave sustenance to it. And when, when Paul writes this, that Jesus is the head of the body, the church, he's saying that Jesus not only gives sustaining power to all of the world, he not only gives sustaining power to you and I, breath by breath, but he gives sustaining power to his church. That the church will exist and continue to exist, not because of any power or privilege of its own, but only because Jesus is the head of the church and Jesus will sustain the church. 
Now, I don't know about you, but as I read that this week, I was encouraged. You know, next month here at the Moody Church, for those of us who have been members here for, for some time, we know that next month it will be three years that we've been without a senior pastor here at the church. And it can be easy to think discouraging thoughts, to get frustrated, to be downcast, to think, are we going to make it? Does anyone like us? What's going on? What's going on? I just want to propose to you that if Jesus sustains the church worldwide, that I think he can sustain our church through this season as well. The church and this church has its power not based on how many people attend on a Sunday morning, not based on the quality of its staff or the integrity of its elders. The church finds its sustenance in one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. And he is the head of the church, and as long as Jesus Christ remains the head and the sustenance of this church, God is with us. Jesus will sustain us and has sustained us through this season and forever long it may be. The fourth reason that Jesus is Lord of all is seen in the last two verses of our passage. The fourth reason Jesus is the greatest of all time. It says this, that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fourth reason that Jesus is the greatest of all time is Jesus is the Lord of all. Jesus is the Lord of all. The passage says that Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What that means here is that Jesus is the first of many. Here it's talking not only about prominence, but about sequence. That's why he's the beginning. He's the first. The firstborn from what though? From the dead. See, next week we gather here and we proclaim and we celebrate the fact that Jesus didn't just die for our sins, but he is the firstborn from the dead who has risen from the grave. And the fact that Jesus rose from the dead guarantees that all who place their faith in him have that same hope to look forward to. Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead because every single person who places their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus will be amongst the next who will have a resurrection from the dead as well. Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection as well. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. The fullness of God. Again, this idea that Jesus isn't just like God. Jesus is fully God. He is God himself. But Paul specifically uses this language here of fullness of God, likely because the teaching was coming into the Colossians that to add to their spiritual experience, to to understand real fullness of spirituality, they needed to add other things to their worship. And Paul wants them to make sure there is nothing that you need to add to your worship besides Jesus. 
In him, the fullness of God dwells. You don't need to add other experiences and other things and other rituals and other teachings and other rules and regulations into what Jesus has offered you. All you need is Jesus. In him is the fullness of God. And in and through Jesus, it says he reconciles all things to himself. That all things have been reconciled to God. Reconciliation is a language of a restoration of fellowship. It's friendship language. When a relationship has been broken and destroyed, if the relationship's able to come back together and both sides come together, it's a restoration, a reconciliation that happens. And through Jesus' blood on the cross, we can be reconciled to God. But he says here as well that Jesus will reconcile all things to himself. That Jesus will reconcile all things. This has been taken at times by scholars and by, by theologians to say that Jesus is going to, is teaching here, Paul's saying that everyone everywhere will be saved. That Jesus will reconcile all things, including all people, to him. So it really doesn't matter what you believe or how you live your life if Jesus is going to reconcile all things ultimately to him. Well, there's a few problems with that. Number one, it simply doesn't line up with the truth of the rest of God's word, and it doesn't even line up with the text immediately before or following it in the book of Colossians. See, the hope that Jesus has for the world and that you and I have isn't just for our own individual reconciliation before God. But all of creation has been affected by sin. Brokenness is everywhere around us. And the Bible looks forward to a day that God will bring peace not only between us and God, but bring peace to the whole world. And what Paul is teaching here isn't worldwide salvation, but it's cosmic renewal. Cosmic restoration that one day creation, all of creation, will be as it was designed to be before sin entered the world. And if that's true for the future, what we can experience is peace with God in the present. But how can we, he says this, by, that Jesus has done this by making peace by the blood of his cross. See, reconciliation with God can only happen one way, and that's through the way that Jesus has provided. And the text goes into the next three verses a lot more on what it means that you and I can be reconciled to God. Be here in two weeks as we dive into that. But know today that if you're not in a relationship with God, that the Bible clearly teaches there's one way for that to happen. And that's through a belief that Jesus' death on the cross, his blood shed for you, can bring peace between you and God. In the middle of this profound section of such rich theological truth, Paul kind of puts out one purpose statement. Why does he take this little break in the middle of this book and highlight the fact that Jesus is the greatest of all time. What is his reason for doing so and highlighting this to the people of Colossians? What's well, found in verse 18, where he writes this, that in everything, 
Jesus might be preeminent. Some translations say that in everything, Jesus might be supreme or have the supremacy. In all things, in all of the world, in all of theology, and in all of our lives as well. That Jesus would have supremacy over every single area of our lives. And we show the preeminence of God, of Jesus in our world, by showing the preeminence that he takes place in our hearts and in our lives. See, believe it or not, even though it snowed this morning, and it maybe still is snowing, I don't know, summer is coming. And I always am fascinated when, when summer approaches and people are at the pool. There's kind of three different types of people at a swimming pool. The first group you have over here, and they're what I call the toe dippers. They take their toe, they go up to the edge, and they kind of dip it in, and then they go something like this, ooh, like it's really cold, and then they go back. They'll maybe even dip a hand in. They're at the pool, but they just kind of dip their toe. They're just checking it out. They're, they're not really in the water. The next group you have are the people who kind of walk slowly in the stairs. They walk down and the water comes up to their ankles and they'll, they'll stand there for a minute to kind of let their, themselves get accumulated and they'll take another step in and another step in till eventually it gets that all painful place where it's right around your waist and they're like on your tippy toes, you're holding your arms because it's painful and you don't want to let it touch the rest of you and you try and avoid it as much as possible. And then there's a group, the third group, who they see the swimming pool and a smile comes across their face and they run as fast as they can and they jump and they cannonball right into the pool. They're so excited, they just jump right in. So I think each of those three things represents a lot of us and our relationship with Jesus. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're just dipping your toe into the water. What is, what is Jesus? What, what, what is all this stuff that, that Christians talk about? Well, if you're exploring what this means and who Jesus is, I hope you leave today knowing that we gather together every Sunday and throughout the week not to say, hey, we're great, we're special, but Jesus is great. That's what we believe. And as you dip your toe into exploring what we believe, know that it's all about Jesus. But for some of us, we're kind of like this person over here, who we're in the pool, we're following Jesus, but we only follow him with about 10, 20, maybe 50% of our lives. Because the rest, well, that's just painful. And I'll take what I want to believe about the Bible and I'll apply that to my life. But then you start to come to church and you start to read the Bible and it starts to say things and you're like, well, yeah, not for me. I don't, what, what the Bible says about money, about time, about my relationships, about sexuality, about my thought life, about my relationship with my husband or my wife or my kids, yeah, I don't, I don't want that part of it. I just want the saved part and get out of heaven and get into heaven, get out of helper. That's what I want. And then there's some of us, which is what Jesus calls us to, who are the kind who look and we see all that Jesus has done for us and we just jump right in. 
Our series is called All In. And I would challenge you this morning with this question. Is Jesus preeminent in every single area of your life? If Jesus wants to be preeminent over all things in our world, Jesus wants to have the supremacy in every single area of your life. Or are you over here and you're kind of avoiding it? You don't want it because that's hurtful and that's painful and that may be difficult. See, sometimes we just give Jesus a segment of our lives when he wants to reign supreme over all of our lives. Stop giving Jesus just your Sundays, just a part of your life. Jesus has come. He is the greatest of all time. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. He was innocent. But the third day he rose again from the dead. And when we see all that Jesus has to offer us, the purpose and the goal of life that's only found in him, the only proper response is to jump all in to all that he offers us. That Jesus would be preeminent in all of our lives. God, we do thank you this morning for Jesus. He is the greatest of all time. He is God himself. Jesus, you are the creator and sustainer of all of life. And you are Lord of all and you want to be Lord of each and every part of our lives. God, this morning, perhaps we sense the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. God, for those who don't know you, would they experience reconciliation today through the cross? But for others of us who maybe want to follow you, but you aren't preeminent in every area of our lives. God, today would we respond to your spirit moving inside of us in obedience. May we respond with faithfulness. May we respond with trust. We praise you, Jesus, this morning. You are great. You are holy. You are mighty. The greatest of all time. Pray all this in Jesus' name.